Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Kelly trainer Polecki, Employment Practices Manager at the California Joint Powers Insurance Authority. Kelly, welcome to the Public CEO Report. Hi, Ryder. Happy to be here. It's great to see you. You and I have had the occasion over the years to be on some panels together and talk. And uh, of course, we get to work a ton at my firm, Trippepi Smith, with the authority. So it's great to have great to have you here. But I know why it's great to have you here. Let's tell our audience why it's great to have you here. Tell me a little bit about your career working in local government. So I will say I actually haven't had a very long career in local government. I've technically only been in local government since joining the authority in March of this year. Um, for the majority of my career before that, I would say that I was local government adjacent. Um, I, I was a, an attorney, eventually a partner at the law firm of Burke Williams and Sorensen, which is a big public sector law firm. Um, kind of modeled the contract city attorney's role back in the, the early 1900s. And so that's where I started my career. It was my first job after completing the bar exams, stayed there my whole career until I came to work inside for a client. So I've always been in the public sector, but never a public employee until now. And you've, uh, I mean, I as I mentioned, I met you speaking on panels, but you're kind of you did the circuit. You did a lot of training out there in the world, uh, going to MMANC and MMASC and speaking at conferences. Uh, your middle name trainer is wholly appropriate given how much time you spent out there training. Can you talk a little bit about that that role that you were doing in general and how you spent so much time out there building up a name uh, identity on the local government circuit? So I will say, um, first, you know, it's kind of, I think, comical to anybody who's known me since I was a child. The idea that I do so much public speaking is actually quite surprising to people that I grew up with because I was terrified of public speaking as a child. I used to shake. I would get very sick to my stomach. I, I absolutely hated it and started to get over it whenever I was in college and had some public roles where I was having to speak for organizations. And then as I got into my career at Burke, you know, sexual harassment training started to become mandatory in 2005. We had a number of agencies that were doing it before then, and it became something that I kind of fell into. Um, one of my my old partners, my boss, Tim, um, encouraged me to get out and start doing uh, sexual harassment prevention training. So I kind of team taught with Tim whenever I was a baby lawyer. And then it just kind of grew. And I found that I actually really enjoyed it. And it kind of fed into one of the parts of the practice of law that I always enjoyed, uh, which is the more of the preventative side of law. I actually hated litigation. I really did not suit my personality or my temperament or really what I enjoyed about the law. And so getting to be out and do training and education, it, it helps people, I think, in their mm -hmm. job, which always spoke to me. And I just really enjoy it. It's always been one of my favorite parts of my job. And so over the years, it just kept developing in different topics that I had the opportunity to go out and speak on. Well, I would say, and now you hear you are at the California Joint Powers Insurance Authority. So uh, that's certainly an organization. Again, we do a ton of work with them. They love the idea of prevent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Prevent is king. So um, talk a little bit about your role there at the authority. What what do you what what do you do there? So as you said, my title is Employment Practices Manager. My primary function is that I oversee um, a program here that we have at the authority called the Employment Hotline, um, which kind of grew very organically out of the authority out of trying to help prevent claims coming in. And whenever members were seeing that they had really complicated, high-risk employment situations, they were calling their risk managers or calling Paul Zeglovich, our liability program manager, to ask for some support or help about how to best strategize with that. 
And so the authorities started kind of providing that on an ad hoc basis. And over the years, it developed into a much more formalized program. So now I oversee that program and do a lot directly with our members, helping them with high-risk employment situations to try to help them find early and appropriate resolutions to them, or if nothing else, to help get it really prepared for litigation if it goes the way that we never want these things to go. Um, in addition to that, I also have a role um, with some of the other employment initiatives that we have at the authority. I'm keeping my, my foot in the training pool because um, I could never completely give it up, but I won't be doing as much uh, member training as I used to. Um, some special things here and there, and then you know sessions still at our academies that we do and forums and whatnot, things like that. And so the authority, just for context, and we did interview John Scholl um, in a prior episode here and had a chance to talk about the authority, and we can link in the description of this video um, to that particular interview as well. But for our audience and purposes of this conversation, uh, what is the authority? What does the authority do? So like you said, like John's interview with you, which I've watched, will do a fantastic job of explaining the authority way better than I could ever hope to do. But the the, the California JPIA is a risk management authority. It's a joint powers um, authority, and it provides risk management and insurance to a number of different public entities, um, just over 120 throughout the state of California. Um, as part of being a risk management organization, um, as you said, the authority does take prevention very seriously. They're very proactive, and I think very inventive about the approach to risk management, which as a business partner with the authority was one of my things that I always loved about working with them. They're very creative and very innovative about how they approach risk. And so we provide a number of different services to our members, both to respond to claims whenever they come in as any traditional risk pool would, but also to really help to try to manage risk ahead of time through the providing of regional risk managers that work directly with the members on a lot of their issues um, through our workers' compensation program manager that works directly with members on workers' comp issues and then with what I do as well on the employment side. So um, thank you for that summary, by the way, for the team. So ultimately, if I'm a member of the authority, then now this now gives me the opportunity to pick up, call the hotline, and I get to speak to you or a member of your team and talk about a hot button issue I have. That's right. We have certain things that are excluded from it, of course, but things that could really lead to potential claims under the memorandum of coverage um, are, are issues that we would be dealing with. So commonly, that's going to be whenever um, employers get complaints of harassment or discrimination, retaliation that come in under the FEHA, um, complaints of bullying sometimes that come in, um, high complicated disciplinary issues are not uncommon. And then probably the most common call that I get is some kind of combination of extended leaves of absence and disability accommodation, which are some of the most complicated things for HR professionals to have to navigate. And so we help a lot with those. And you're, um, and this is a, a benefit that just exists as by right as being a member of the authority? It is. It's a pooled cost to the authority. So there's no, there's no direct bill that goes to our members. It's just part of the overall cost of the authority. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, and I would assume, I imagine most of the people that call you are either risk managers in their organizations or HR directors or someone in the HR department. <laughs> Absolutely. Usually most calls will come from the human resources manager, sometimes from risk, um, and then certainly sometimes heads of agencies as well. We'll get calls from general managers or city managers who have a problem they need to talk to us directly about. Right. Um, so I guess you kind of hinted at some of the most common calls you get. Uh, any other examples of of kind of other typical things that people might call about? I mean, imagine if, if one of the members of our audience right now uh, is in the authority um, and not perhaps realizing that they have this access. And so now you're going to get inundated. Congratulations with the phone calls. <laughs> um, so uh, any other uh, scenarios to describe out there or maybe some recent 
recently particularly hot button issues beyond um, beyond the ones you just identified? Oh, yeah. I mean, right now, I mean, if I go a day without a COVID phone call, I feel mm -hmm. like something has drastically shifted in our world. So um, I get a COVID call almost every single day or an email dealing with COVID. So it's nonstop COVID. Um, recently, I've had um, a threat assessment that I worked with one of our members on. We brought in an outside um, threat assessor to come in and help with potential workplace violence situation. That was a more unique call that has come in recently. And then we've had just some complicated calls, um, sometimes relationships between um, elected bodies and staff and trying to help strategize how to make those a little bit more effective quality working relationships as well. Right. Yeah. Certainly the relationship between city manager, city council members, city staff, it's a complex relationship, right? Especially when you when you have a council, the council generally in a city manager relationship is generally the council will hire the city manager, city manager hires the rest of the staff. There can be awkward pressures that come from council members to city staff uh, and that dynamic in general, um, just given the nature of the governance can create some real challenges for um, uh, that organization like the authority with your expertise could really be helpful in, in guiding everybody on to be remain on the right side of of, of issues and mitigate costs. So, um, all right. And how about a related point then? Any? Uh, I know that the authority is big on webinars and training. You talked about the fact that you're doing some training. Mm -hmm. So, and I, it, you know, I've, I've having been to the the uh, authority campus. Um, uh, their main hall room, which hasn't been used frankly because of uh, COVID, is now turned into a massive studio setup. Uh, so there's been a ton of broadcasting that's been happening out of there. Uh, and then I know that there's other there's another studio that they access. They do a ton of of training video production on. So can you talk a little bit about those resources, too, and maybe how you're involved in that as well? Yeah, so um, we just completed our Human Resources Academy. Um, I had my final session this morning before I got on to talk with you. So I was in front of all the big bright lights that we have in there. Um, it is, it's a really amazing production that the authorities invested in to be able to continue providing first quality, high rate training to our members. Um, so through that, um, I have spoken at both this year um, at the Risk Managers Academy and then at the Human Resources Academy. Um, and then I've also been doing some, um, some partner trainings. So we did training um, earlier for the San Gabriel City Managers Association for their annual meeting, um, where I got to talk with the city managers about telecommuting in the public sector. And then one that I just really enjoyed that we did recently that we did with MMASC, um, I spoke with um, Dan Jordan, who is the city manager for the city of Duarte, and then with Greg Murphy, who's a partner at Burke that I previously worked with. He's a city attorney. The three of us put together a panel to talk about just really questions that public agencies have about COVID right now, both on the employment side and on the public side. That was a fun one to get to do. It was, they're, they're great guys to be able to speak with. So that was enjoyable. So Kelly, I think it's a testament to your uh, commitment to your profession that you're able to find the fun in some COVID issue and some nuance of the COVID issue. That's an HR related issue, right? Obviously COVID itself isn't, but it's raised a lot of complexities um, and it's changed the work environment too. There's been a lot of remote telework going on, which is relatively new for the private sector. You and I will be speaking on a panel at the September conference for Contract Cities Association on this very subject. You'll be covering legal issues. I'll be kind of covering some management observations and experiences at our firm. We're 100% virtual and have been since mm, 2015 or 14 or something like that. Um, but what, raise some of those points. What are some of these things that are coming up around that virtual work environment that we should be aware of or that our audience would be interested in contemplating? So for telework with COVID, I, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that for me, from an employment perspective, I always look at teleworking in two different boxes. Are we looking at teleworking as an employment benefit or are we looking at teleworking as an accommodation for disability? Because there's there's two different, two different analysis that we're going through. You know, 
I will say one of the things that that really impressed me and that without sounding ridiculously cheesy really did warm my heart about getting to work with the public sector was how quickly the public sector really did adjust whenever it had to last year with COVID. It was it was amazing to watch so many of the public agencies that I work with just turn on a dime and figure out how to do something that had never really been done in the public sector and be able to continue to provide services and to engage with the public in, in new ways that a lot of people were really uncomfortable with. And so it was amazing to watch. And as we are coming out of it, and as we've got, you know, most agencies, a lot of agencies went back pretty quickly, but a number stayed remote or stayed Mm -hmm. a a hybrid combination. And I think there's a number that are really starting to embrace teleworking. And so I've spoken with a few different, um, mostly cities, a couple of special districts that are thinking about really continuing to offer hybrid teleworking. Uh, Not a whole lot really seem to have the appetite for 100% remote. I think it's just too much, not with the culture in public sector, but looking at continuing it. And certainly employees really do like it. A lot of employees like it. I mean, I will say I've had to commute every single day this week and I've forgotten what it's like to drive every (laughs) single day in traffic. (laughs) So it's people are getting very used to it. And so I think from a real strategic standpoint um, for employers, especially if they are opposed to the idea of ongoing telework, it's perfectly, you know, appropriate choice for an employer to make, but they need to be pretty mindful of it. And the fact that employees are going to probably start looking for this as a benefit and that agencies that are willing to offer it, it's going to give them a little bit of a competitive leg up for some positions because it also opens their applicant pool much wider. I mean, if you're willing to have somebody who doesn't come in the office that much, well, you're not just looking at your immediate geographic region. You look at the whole state of California. So there's a lot more options there. There are some potential legal challenges with it. Of course, it's going to be a negotiable item for anybody with a labor union. Almost everything is. So if you're thinking about it, if you're not thinking about it, the union's probably going to ask you for it. So you're going to have to talk to them at some point about it. Um, There are potential issues, you know, concerning making sure that somebody's remote work in space is still a safe workplace to be able to work and making sure that your both technology and your workplace policies translate well to a work from home, you know, setup. So there's a little bit to be done there, but it's something that can be done for agencies that, that it's the right fit for. But I will also say for a lot of public agencies, teleworking is not the right fit. You know, they don't have a community that would be supportive of it. They don't have an elected body that is supportive of it. Those things really do matter if they don't have strong tech and the ability to, to maintain a remote workforce for an extended time, then it's not the right fit for them. And they should be okay with that and making adjustments for it. And the last thing I'll add about that that I think is really interesting is that one thing that I do think that every public agency should be doing is thinking about how it can integrate teleworking as part of its emergency plan. That Mm -hmm. if there is another, even a natural disaster, something that we're more used to dealing with in California, hopefully never another pandemic, um, that that we're able to quickly turn to teleworking for continuity of government and services during another type of disaster. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, all those all those points and more. It's um, I, I, part of my observation too. And you had made mention of whether or not the city hall culture would support it, right? I mean, that's partly a question of is the city council comfortable with it? Is the community comfortable with it? Is the management at the city comfortable with it? And if not, like, what does it take to get comfortable with it, right? Um, I mean, obviously, there are organizations. I'd like to think our organization, Beppy Smith, has been quite successful having a 100% remote work environment. My employees love it. They don't have to generally commute. Yes, we have to make road trips and get stuff done and go see clients, but which we love. Um, but having the ability to not have to spend two hours on a road trip uh, driving back and forth is a massive savings. I mean, one of my one of my employees, rockstar employees on the team. 
uh, used to have to drive an hour and a half to two hours every day to just one way to get into the office and then drive back. And the moment that uh, he was able to join our team, he suddenly shaved three and a half hours off of his lifetime uh, each day in the car uh, and saved it, right? So um, those are all huge advantages uh, and the flexibility that comes with it, right? The redundancy of team, you know, if, if City Hall gets shut down for some reason, can you still access all those cloud services? Uh, can you still function as an organization if you force the point of shifting to virtual city hall of sorts and having online services and online permit applications and online business license applications and whatnot it makes a lot of that stuff much more viable mm -hmm. uh, I, I have one specific question i want to drill in on so you mentioned about tapping into a workforce throughout the state of california but is that a limitation or could you theoretically be hiring people in colorado and michigan to work for your city hall you could technically. I mean, there's certainly going to be restrictions. You're going to have to be aware of multiple different jurisdictions. You're going to figure out all the conflicts of law that you have to deal with. You got to talk to a finance professional because I don't know anything about that. But, you know, there it is possible. I actually I have a, a hotline matter right now with one of our members who is looking at just on a temporary basis. I'm having an employee work from Oregon and has raised a couple of questions. And so I'm working through those right now. Right. Yeah, those are those are kind of interesting questions. We get questions all the time, at our firm, about the possibility of could I go spend a month working in Paris, or could I go spend, you know, could I go on a on a eight week trip somewhere and just essentially be on an extended vacation, but working the whole time. So it's not a vacation, obviously, but they're in a different location. Um, so those are interesting questions. Maybe I should call your hotline and see what happens. <laughs> um, all right, interesting. So uh, a, a different area to explore here real quick too is kind of diversity in the workplace and a renewed interest in this in this area i mean my general observation is cities have been pretty effective at uh hiring on merit and finding amazing people of all stripes and backgrounds and uh, experiences but um any comments you want to make about that what you're seeing in employment trends or or issues around that so I think, I mean, I think it's really something that it's it's a good thing and it's it's time that it is focused on in our workplaces is really looking at, you know, how inclusive are our workplaces and what can we be doing to make it more, both in terms of recruiting, but also in terms of making sure that our workplaces feel like a place where every employee can be their true authentic self. And that's, I think, a really important thing for, for the culture of the organization. I think, you know, one of the biggest things, it's really something that human resources professionals are starting to really focus on. And you're starting to see a lot of growth in that area for HR professionals to really start developing because they are really going to be one of the big driving forces behind it because that's such an HR area. Um, you know, I'm really excited to see how much is being done in that that education space for HR professionals. Like I'm looking at the the sessions that are going to be at Calpella this year and just a huge focus on DEI areas to start getting that knowledge out to HR professionals who can then bring it back and start to really develop it in their organizations. And, you know, California is a diverse state and gets more diverse every single year. And, you know, the more that we embrace that and that we learn from the different experiences that a diverse workforce brings, I think it makes us stronger. I think it makes us better to serve our diverse populations. I think it's a great thing and it's it's really great to see it starting to really take hold. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Uh, and now let's go back to talk about some specific examples here around uh, advice and handling difficult employees. You had made mention of the point that um, that's oftentimes one of the calls you get, right? Is somebody identifies, oh, we have a situation here, we have a difficult employee. Uh, what is your general advice around kind of managing those situations? Recognizing, of course, that you're speaking specifically to the experiences of public agencies. Right, so for me, like generally, I will say, you know, of course, 
just to give you the standard lawyer answer that I can't have a conversation without giving, it's always going to be, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's going to depend on the circumstances. You know, my focus is always going to be as an attorney, you know, on potential legal liability and on trying to mitigate any potential liability. And so it's a place where in working with a particularly challenging employee in the workplace, I think it becomes a real cooperative relationship usually between me and between the HR professional because human resources professionals bring a completely different skill set to the challenge of difficult employees than I bring as an attorney. And so together we kind of, you know, get to the whole employee issue because HR, you know, you have talented human resources professionals who are so much more trained and skilled in dealing with some of the soft skills that, you know, you know, nobody calls a lawyer to find out how to be a nicer human being. <laughs> so sometimes we have to have that balance between the two disciplines. And so for me, my first, you know, I think big advice just generally in dealing with difficult employees is the value that needs to be placed on human resources. Um, I am a huge cheerleader for HR professionals and the value and importance that they hold in the organization and how much that needs to be promoted and elevated and reinforced across the entire staff. Because HR does a lot more than just process discipline and manage benefits. And whenever you utilize their skill set as HR professionals, it helps to deal with the interpersonal skills. I mean, they are your resource for humans. It's why we have their names. So making sure that you're, you're, you're getting good HR people, that you're training them and that you're valuing their service to your organization is I think a really, really big one. Um, the other big thing is I think kind of more macro in dealing with difficult employees. Sometimes difficult employees are difficult employees because you don't have a workforce that has been well-trained about how to manage as a supervisor. Um, one of the things that I say pretty much every time I talk to a group of supervisors is that being a supervisor in the state of California is not for the faint of heart. We expect and need a lot out of our supervisors. And oftentimes supervisors don't become supervisors because they're great at managing people, even though it's the thing that distinguishes you as a supervisor, it's right there in the title, right? You supervise. But most people become supervisors because they're technically proficient at their chosen career. Mm -hmm. And then we all just kind of cross our fingers and hope that they're going to be able to manage people. And I think agencies that do a better job of training their supervisors on how to lead and how to manage and how to develop those soft skills, they have fewer issues with difficult employees because the people who are responsible for managing the employees have been properly trained and educated. And I can get a little passionate about the need for education and training of our workforces. That is a very well-made point, right? And, and you do see it time and time again. I was just talking about this with a family member of mine where promotions happen because somebody is technically competent but not necessarily a people-oriented person. And all of a sudden, you've lost their direct day-to-day -day application and their technical skills on the work that needs to be done. And at the same time, they maybe are incompetent at managing people. And so they end up creating even more problems. Like it's, it's, a, it's a real conundrum for organizations. On the other hand, people want to get promoted. They want to move up. And the, the path perceived pathway is you move up by getting to supervise people, right? And, and kind of spread your talents among more folks on the team. So it's an interesting challenge. Um, and so does uh, the authority do training on supervisor for supervisors too? We do. The authority has always had supervisor training, um, but right now in the works, um, our training department, which is an amazing part of the authority, is actually working on developing um, a supervisor series that is specific more to the softer skills that's going to be rolled out um, for members, which I'm really excited about. And I think it's going to address a lot of employment issues that we have, because a lot of times, you know, claims that will come through the hotline or that end up in litigation, whenever you really try to drill down on a lessons learned and, you know, what could you have done to make this situation better? A lot of 
oftentimes it, there's not a legal thing that you can point to to say, oh, well, if you hadn't broken that law, oftentimes that's not actually what the underlying issue is. It's a problem between people and between making sure, you know, how you're making sure that your employees are being heard and how they're working together and how supervisors are able to adjust their supervisory skill for employees who need a different style. Right. And so, yeah, they are. We're, we're working on that right now to get something out to help our supervisors in that vein. Yeah, well, and the related concept I would note there, too, is even if, like, let's say that there's a conflict or issue that could theoretically turn into a legal one, but instead it resolves itself because one of the two parties decides to move on from the organization just to wash their hands of it and go somewhere else. While that might be less expensive than a lawsuit, it still raises the challenge of having to refill a position and the consequences that go along with that, which is usually estimated between anywhere from a third to more of a person's salary to replace that person and get through the process and the disruption of the organization. And the more senior the person, the bigger the disruption. So, you know, not only can uh, working things out with this management perspective or supervisor perspective uh, avoid lawsuits, if it, it can also avoid the turnover and staff and the consequences that come with that, that's also a, a big win for the organization too. No, I would agree with that. And, you know, you talk to people about what keeps you at a job. Most people will say the people keep me at a job. You know, I mean, I can I can technically do my work at a lot of different places. I stay somewhere because of the people and because of what the environment feels like. It's that thing that you can't really quantify that really keeps loyalty in an organization. Yeah, 100 percent agree. And that's been for having had the opportunity uh, and the responsibility at the same time to like at my firm, watch watch us grow from you know, hiring our first employee in 2011 to being at 34 people now and the changing role that culture and interpersonal relationships play and the overall effectiveness mm -hmm. of the team, and the team readiness. I mean, it's when we had three people, my capacity to concentrate on culture was like non-existent. But now that we have 34, like the, the benefits of culture and culture building is infinite, right? In mm -hmm. terms of productivity and job satisfaction and retaining amazing folks on the team who want to give their all every day for our clients. So um, what... Uh, I want to go. So one of the questions I always like to ask on the on the conversation here is like, what what's working right in local government, right? And so for some folks, that's a big policy issue, and they're elected officials or a city manager, and they're focusing on you know whether it's legalizing cannabis or some other policy that seems to be working great. Um, at which maybe you have a perspective on that too. So I don't want to pigeonhole you <laughs> as a, uh, a recovering attorney and a uh, HR professional. Um, but on the other hand, you may have a very narrow worldview on this. So however you want to take the question, what's working right in local government from your perspective? For me, honestly, I would say the people are working right in local government, um, which I think is always something that people sometimes don't expect to hear from me because, you know, quite bluntly, I, I see the worst that the public sector has to have. I mean, you know, I, I know all the bad things that public employees do. I help write their discipline notices. So I've seen the worst that the public sector has, but I've never lost my shine for public sector employees. I have always found the vast majority of public sector employees to be absolutely amazingly dedicated professionals who are almost always just doing their small part to help make their communities better. And, you know, just like what I was talking about with how well they responded with COVID. I mean, it had nothing to do with my job, but I would have extended conversations sometimes with some HR professionals about what their recreation departments were doing and how creative they were being about providing services to kids and to seniors who were isolated during the pandemic. And just, I mean, amazing 
amazing, this commitment to people that I mm. think is such a great part of local government. So for me, that has always been what works well in local government. The bad apples that I have to deal with every now and then, they're a really, really small percentage. And I hate that they suck up so much of the oxygen and the impression that I think a lot of people who don't work with local government has about local government, that by and large, local government should never be defined by the bad kids that make it on the 11 o'clock news. It's not, it's not who local government is. Yeah, 100%. 100% agree with that. And how about what, uh, what what's broken? What needs fixing from your perspective in local government? So, if, you were, if you were, you know, God for a day and could wave a <laughs> wand and fix something, what would it be? Uh, I think that I would fix making sure that we have enough good people that are coming up in local government. I think that's the other real challenge that I know so many people have talked about, you know, the so-called silver tsunami with so many of our really like tenured seasoned professionals in local government that are leaving the profession because it's time for them to retire and really making sure that we've got good people that have been trained and are ready to step up to be the next generation. And for me, if there's one thing that I would love to change, I would love to change how the public sector markets itself to our current generations, to our younger generations, to our millennials and our Gen Z, because there's such a strong commitment within that generation of service. And I think that a lot of times local government misses the mark in not talking about the service that you provide as a government employee. And that in addition to having, you know, a great job with great benefits and, you know, all the good things that, you know, you historically hear, that one of the great things about local government is that you can truly be the person who tries to effectuate some change in your in your neighborhood that you know planning matters and recreation matters and public works matter all of it matters so much to our communities and that whenever you talk to people who don't really have an understanding of government that the things that they see that are most important to them are always local issues i mean mm -hmm. it's important to make sure that that traffic light is properly timed so that traffic flows down your street right it's important to people's lives and just these little things that you can do to make people's lives better i feel like we don't do enough good job of, of really talking about that in that really positive spin that local government makes a difference. Yeah, I, I, you know, I will admit I'm a huge fan that when I turn on my faucet, water comes out, clean water <laughs> I can drink. I'm a massive fan that when, uh, as it goes in the sink, it just disappears somewhere magically and gets taken care of for me, right? Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of those things. I love that there are wonderful, friendly police officers who patrol the streets of Dustin and that my streets don't have potholes. Like those are all, uh, Good things. They're very good things. Um, all right. And then I guess a last question, just as kind of we'll end on a high note here in terms of opportunity and advice that you have. So uh, how can leaders create a positive workplace environment, right? How can they set that tone uh, that feels safe and where employees feel valued and really, you know, creates that environment where people want to come to work because of that, that X factor that you talked about a little bit? What can leaders do to make an impact there that you've seen successful? Oh, that is the proverbial $64,000 question, isn't it? How to actually make it happen in real life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think one of the biggest is honestly that employees need to be heard. Employees need to have a space where they know that they have a voice. I think that a lot of times employees that are dissatisfied and unhappy, it's because they don't ever think that they're heard. And not because they don't always get their way. I mean, certainly there's always going to be, you know, an employee here or there who thinks that it's wrong if you're not doing it their way. But just that they're not heard, that their opinions aren't taken into consideration 
consideration, that they don't feel like that their city manager, their department head or HR, whoever it is, that they don't really listen to the employees. And I think that listening is an underrated skill and something that could really be more valued within pretty much every workplace, not just the public sector. I think that having a leader that listens is really, really important. And I think does start that culture of you are important to our organization. And by listening and hearing what they have to say, sometimes employees have amazing ideas. Um, I, it was something that I used to have to deal with at the bargaining table. Um, I don't have to deal with labor relations anymore in my role, but whenever I was at Burke, I was a labor negotiator as well as an advisor and a trainer. I did that too. And sitting at the table, you know, there were times that, that the employees would come up with really great creative solutions. And if not for that process, that information probably wouldn't have made its way to management. Mm -hmm. And so trying to find a way where employees do have that opportunity to be heard and to have, you know, people that will really listen to them, I think helps a lot. And then I will absolutely say training, 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 and some more training, I think is always necessary. Um, one of my organizations that I used to work with had a robust training program. It was one of my things that I loved about them. They offered internal supervisor training series for their, it was great. And I, I had the honor of getting to be part of that to where I would come up and did a couple of the legal sessions for them. And even whenever talking to supervisors on really complicated legal issues, talking to them about our leave laws and disability and how that all works and what their role is, they were thirsty for that knowledge. They wanted to understand what their role was in the organization and what they could do to make it better. Any supervisor that is worth their salt wants to do a better job. They want to learn more. They want to do more. They want to be able to contribute more. And giving them that opportunity, I think, also helps to grow. Because whenever you start growing your supervisors at every single level, the whole organization rises up with it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, 100% agree with that. It's, uh, and the value of of having a culture of employees who want to learn, which is usually emblematic of a high-performance employee. Like that's a that's a very important thing you want to encourage and embrace and celebrate the sex successes of folks who are uh, in that environment and learning. So, mm -hmm. uh, well, I hope that our audience listened up today and followed your good advice on being a great listener as a great leadership trait and taking advantage of it. It uh, you have excellent experience and. The authority and frankly, the members of the authority that get to call you on the hotline and talk with you have uh, found themselves a tremendous resource. And I appreciate that you're continuing to give back to the local government community by speaking on the local government circuit and offering in your insights experience. So um, thanks for being with me today, Kelly. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Ryder. It was a pleasure to be here. I enjoyed this. So that's today's report. My thanks to Kelly for joining us from the whole public CEO team, myself, Ryder Todd Smith. Thank you for your time today. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.